Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. It's been a little bit of time. I had to take a little time off from producing this podcast. It uh, started to get into a bit of a busy season there towards the end of the last semester. As most of you know, I'm working on my PhD and so was doing a lot of different things and it was kind of kicking my butt. So I had all of season two recorded. I was like cranking out all the episodes. I was recording them all, but you know, the biggest time investment on producing these episodes are in the editing. For every one hour you record, it takes about four hours or so to do the editing and post-production stuff. So a lot of time on top of uh, the many things I have going on. So I apologize for the delay, but I appreciate your patience. It looks like a lot of people have continued to listen to old episodes and get through all of the ones that I'd put out before. So I'm really grateful, really appreciative. And I have a new episode for you today. I'm going to try and get the rest of season two out as quickly as possible because I have even more ideas and more things I want to do, and I'll probably have more time as we get closer to the summer. But that being said, I have a whole queue of episodes for you that I hope you enjoy. The one today is about alpine ecology and alpine lakes and just the impacts of humans and climate change on these ecosystems. And so we have a researcher at Colorado State, Caitlin Charlton, on, and I'm so excited for you guys to take a listen to this episode. And I hope you learn a lot about what you can do and how you can behave in the wilderness. As I mentioned, I did a lot of these recordings, you know, a few months ago. So this recording actually was done at the end of September when we were experiencing uh, close to the tail end of experiencing a lot of wildfires here in Colorado. As most of you guys know, it was record wildfire years, both in California and in Colorado. We had the largest fire ever on record. And so we were experiencing a lot of poor air quality and issues. And so we talk a little bit about that in the episode just to give you some context for that. So without any further ado, here is the latest installment of Environmentality. Thanks again for your patience, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Environmentality, a podcast for current environmental news, lectures, and interviews with the experts. I'm your host, Brendan Anthony. Let's dive on in. All right, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today we have Caitlin Charlton on with us. She is a researcher at Colorado State University with an extensive background in limnology and alpine ecology. And she's going to be chatting with us today all about those fields and her research and experience in those areas. So thanks so much for joining us, Caitlin. Yeah, great to be on the show. Well, cool. So how about we just dive on in and give us a little bit of your background and how you fell in love with this area and the environment? Yeah, so my undergrad degree was in biology ecology, and for a long time I wanted to be a vet and kind of fell into the whole limnology world. The summer before my senior year of undergrad, I went up to Flathead Lake Biological Station in Montana, and I um, was doing a lot of stuff related to limnology on Flathead Lake there, and then some stuff in Glacier National Park as well, and I kind of fell in love with the fieldwork aspect of everything. And um, I was just like, oh my goodness, like, I think I want to go to grad school and I love lakes and stuff and, and water is such an important resource. And then that following fall, I took a actual course in limnology. And then that's when I kind of made that decision to kind of, I wanted to study lakes and be in the mountains. Um, And yeah, that's kind of what pushed me to go in this direction for research. Awesome. And so then what is limnology? Yeah. So limnology, um, the technical definition is the study of uh, freshwater systems. Um, typically, it's referred to or in association with lakes. Um, but yeah, it kind of could 
the streams and any sort of inland water body. Awesome. And then where did you grow up? I grew up in Miami, Florida. So no mountains. A long way from mountains. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And my undergrad um, was in Waco, Texas. So also pretty far from the mountains. Then my way out here right after that uh, to start my master's degree at Colorado State. Cool. So then how did you end up in Glacier when you were studying down in Waco? Oh, it's kind of just, I, I've always loved the mountains. I grew up every summer as a kid, we would go up to the Appalachian Mountains in North Carolina, kind of Blowing Rock, Boone area, and we would hike and go camping and just be out in lakes and stuff out there. And that's when I kind of fell in love with the mountains as a kid. And so when I had this biology station requirement during undergrad, that's when I was trying to find something that was in the mountains. It would be a cool, cool, cool experience um, in the Flathead Lake biological station is just an absolutely amazing place. Yeah. Yeah. It's gorgeous up there. I I really enjoyed up in that area as well. Um, So that's really cool. So then what would you say is your favorite mountain? Ooh, favorite mountain. Um, I am a little biased to kind of the Lockvale watershed and Rocky Mountain National Park. Cool. Um, I just have a soft spot for it just because I do field work up there all the time. But I will say Maybe not a specific mountain, but I think Glacier National Park is like my favorite place I've ever been to the state still. So, Okay. Yeah. Good. And yeah, it seems like every other week and I see you on Instagram summiting a 14, are you trying to check off all of them in the state here in Colorado? I am. Yeah. I haven't done as many as I have wanted yet. So I I think I'm only at like 13 right now, but um, yeah, I knocked off I think seven this summer so how many are there in total uh so there's 54 technically there's 58 but four of them aren't counted in in the official 14er list because their uh, summit isn't above 300 feet above the nearest saddle of the mountain and they don't count it but most people count all 58 so I, I count all 58. <laughs> good, good, good. Well, you're well on your way then with 13. That's impressive. So, okay. So your background is in the knowledge, the study of kind of fresh body, fresh water body systems. So what is the significance of understanding and studying this natural resource, especially as we think about it in the context of mountains? Yeah. So alpine lakes or mountain lakes specifically are our headwater systems. And so, you know, a lot of our, or pretty much all of our fresh water it starts up in these alpine regions and these lakes um, way up high. And so understanding the dynamics and the ecology of what's going on in those lakes and the ecosystem around them is really important for understanding water quality downstream, understanding changes we might be seeing in our water supply just based on what's happening um, up in the mountain region. For sure. And I know just in particular, because I grew up in Southern California, you know, a lot of the ag and irrigation that we would get even in Southern California is coming from the Colorado River, which is, of course, initiating from here. And so there's certainly tremendous impact of knowing, like, as you said, where the headwater is and understanding what's happening up there, because it all eventually trickles downstream. So that's really, really uh, significant for sure. So then let's chat maybe a little bit about what you are actually studying in terms of your research here at Colorado State. Yeah, so I have kind of a few different projects going on right now. My master's research is actually based out of the Sierra Nevada in California. And what I'm doing, what I 
have been doing out there is um, I took lake sediment cores from a couple alpine lakes out there. And essentially what we can study with that is uh, we're looking at algal productivity through time for about the past two centuries. And so I get these lake sediment cores. They're probably about like 30 centimeters in length, and that can take us back almost 500 years plus. But we're really interested in the past 200 years and changes that we see in um, different algal groups over that period of time because it relates to uh, when we start seeing more human impacts on these high elevation systems. And so when there's changes in these algal groups and algal pigments, we can it relates to changes in climate, changes in like nutrient deposition that are signatures of human influences on these systems, um, which then can tell us that, yes, these lakes are indeed changing at like a fundamental ecological level because of additional nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus that human interactions with these elevation, high elevation systems are putting up into the atmosphere, getting into these lakes and changing their ecology. Wow. Yeah. So that's super fascinating. Would you say that then the primary source of that nitrogen and phosphorus is coming from agricultural activity? Yeah. So a big uh, it's a big source here in Colorado and in California. There's a ton of ag on the Front Range, and there's a ton of ag in Central Valley in California. And based on winds and so- uh, storms that have upslope events, gets up into these mountain ranges and deposits a lot of nitrogen to these systems. Phosphorus um, can be it's mostly dust deposition. So in Colorado, we get a lot of phosphorus from the desert out in like Utah um, through storms coming that way. Deposits phosphorus up into high elevation systems uh, in the Rockies and similar um, in California. You have you can have phosphorus deposition. Um, we've actually traced some phosphorus um, that actually blows all the way from China and wow. big atmospheric currents and stuff. And yeah, so it's almost all, all of this excess nutrients is from human, um, either ag- agriculture or transportation, mm-hmm. um, fossil fuel, fuel burning, stuff like that. It's insane. It, it goes to show that really no part of the planet is untouched by humans that even in these, you know, remote lakes up in these mountains, we're seeing the impacts of human activity. That's crazy. So I guess just to maybe explain it for some of the the listeners. So you have excess nutrients, which is driving algae growth, which is a a type of like plant primary producer, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe you want to explain what is the significance of that? Like, why is that issue? You get these uh, algal blooms and then how does that negatively impact that uh, ecological system? Yeah. So having these excess algal blooms in our high elevation lakes. This is something you would typically see in like a low elevation pond or small lake, or a lot of people are familiar with um, the big algal blooms in uh, Lake Erie and the Great Lakes. And it's a lot more common in lakes that have, that are super close in proximity to agricultural regions and transportation stuff. And it's only been over the, like, the past decade that a lot of alpine lake researchers have started noticing like, hey, there's these big algal blooms happening in these alpine lakes. We haven't noticed this before. And what that means for um, alpine lakes is it can change the water quality dramatically. So a, a fear with algal blooms is that they'll become toxic. And so you'll have these species that emit toxins into the water. And that's bad for wildlife. That's bad for humans that are going to be drinking out of these waters, like hikers and backpackers. Um, it's bad for the park service. A lot of these alpine lakes are in you know national parks that we all love. And the Park Service actually has a vested interest in not wanting these algal blooms because they don't want people, you know, people don't want to hike up to this alpine lake and have like 
pond scum all over the place. Sure. Um, so the park service is actually a big part of these studies right now because they want to be able to protect these the aesthetics of these alpine lakes. And you know, if you have a toxic algal bloom happening in an alpine lake, what's going to happen downstream? So we need to understand what's going on at the top to be able to understand how it's going to affect downstream ecosystems as well. And it also can affect um, fish like the fish ecology in lakes as well. So when you have a big bloom of algae and it dies off when temperatures drop, when it sinks down to the bottom, essentially what that does is it will draw down the oxygen in the water column. And that can be really bad for fish because if you have this really big oxygen depletion, you have a zone of anoxia, then you're not going to have any oxygen in the water for the fish to consume. And that could lead to fish die-offs. And we're not necessarily seeing that yet, but it's very concerning that we're seeing like these big mats on the bottom of alpine lakes and that haven't been there probably 15 years ago. Super devastating because, you know, I think a lot of people, when you talk about this process of eutrophication, you know, we see this a lot in the Mississippi River in the Gulf and in the Great Lakes where these big, large agriculture industries are taking place. All this nutrient comes out. We get these huge algae blooms. We lose all the oxygen and then we get these huge dead zones. I think the Gulf of Mexico is like one of the largest dead zones on the planet. And it's so devoid of wildlife and devoid of ecology. And that's not just bad for the animals, but also for the people that depend on that for fishing industry and, and tourism, right? As you're mentioning with the, with the national park system. And so, yeah, I, I would assume that it's very disconcerting to see the kind of precursor to that starting to happen in these really remote alpine regions. Yeah. So what are some other issues that maybe some of these alpine lakes are experiencing uh, aside from nutrient deposition? Yeah. So another, another issue that we're seeing is, um, actually related to like direct human impacts on some of these systems. So we have an interesting project going on in the Lockvale watershed in Rocky Mountain National Park, where we were sampling for and measuring caffeine in soil and water around our lakes and mapping that with, it's kind of gross, but we're mapping that with like human waste um, points all around the watershed and social trailing and stuff. And so we're trying to figure out if the excess nitrogen getting into these lakes and into the surrounding ecosystem, if there's like a significant contribution from like direct human waste entering the system, mm. because the park and just us being up there all the time doing field work, we're just like, there is a problem with human waste all around the trail, really close to the water. Um, and we actually just did a little back calculation with our caffeine numbers and social trails. And we still have to run some samples, but we figured out that like 14% of the wet deposition of nitrogen um, is potentially coming from direct human waste into the watershed. And that's a pretty wow. significant number when you think about just, I mean, it's, uh, you would think it's a very remote region removed from human impact. Sure. These places get super highly trafficked and people that aren't following leave no trace principles and stuff are having a really important impact on these systems and changing their nutrient deposition rates. And kind of going off of that, there is a big a big problem is related to like people not following leave no trace rules. Essentially, we're seeing social trails all over the place where people just kind of trampling vegetation that leads to erosion. And then there's like less vegetation that can actually regrow in these areas because there's not enough soil, especially in when you get to the alpine region above treeline, um, the alpine tundra, like grasses and stuff are extremely sensitive to people um, stepping on them and walking on them. And people just, that just aren't aware, you know, they're just walking all over this really fragile vegetation and it dies and it's really hard for it to grow back. So we've been seeing a lot of that, especially over the past 
not me specifically, but everyone working the watershed, especially over the past 15 years or so, it's just become more and more of a problem. For sure. And and I would assume that with all that traffic, you get compaction, which also creates a really big challenge to, you know, regrowing that vegetation and trying to get it back to its you know natural habitat and ecology. And then again, with the soil erosion as well, I would assume that that also impacts then the water quality, which again, impacts the ecology in the water as well. Exactly. I'd love to maybe go back to the, the caffeine project that you're working on. So I guess, why are, did you choose caffeine? Is it because caffeine is not naturally seen in these areas? And so this is a direct uh, you know, chemical that we're seeing in humans. And then is the nutrients coming more from urine or is it from feces? Yeah. So we started this last summer and um, we chose caffeine because yeah, it's only going to be coming from humans. It's not coming from animals or anything. So it's an easy way to trace actual human waste in the system. And it's kind of been a pretty commonly used tracer for natural systems to kind of figure out where stuff is coming from humans. So there's other studies and stuff that have used this similar, like a similar method. And so, yeah, that's why we picked caffeine. And we did it initially with the intention of trying to find like urine spots that people were going. And there's like a certain percentage, like per, there's like an average size of like urine a person will go every single time and so you use that plus how much if a person drank like a cup of coffee in the morning there's a number that related to that and then you can basically calculate out how uh-huh. many like how many people are like using the watershed as their bathroom <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> this is a yeah. dirty job oh yeah and it's it's really kind of sad once you're up there because i mean we just see like toilet paper everywhere and Mm. like really close to the trails and it's yeah it's becoming kind of gross in certain seasons when it's just a lot of people are up there it it gets kind of disgusting honestly for sure the park is actually looking at possibly putting in uh, like a pit toilet up there just because of probably we pointed out it's a big problem yeah Um, so they're trying to do something about it so you mentioned this idea of LNT, leave no trace. You want to maybe pitch the philosophy and what all that entails? Yeah. So leave no trace um, is essentially, you know, when you go out into nature and hiking around, backpacking, camping, whatever you're doing, you want to leave the place like as if you were never there. And so a lot of that is, you know, you pack out all your waste. You don't leave anything in whatever natural area you're in. Um, you stay on trail. You're not just like hiking off and trampling grass and vegetation. And there's a big problem with just people. I mean, people just don't really follow that. I feel like a lot of avid hikers and backpackers are familiar with these principles, but especially in the national park system, when you have, you know, just your everyday person kind of coming up and they want to be out in nature, which is a great thing. But a lot of people just aren't familiar that, you know, if you do have to go to the bathroom, like you need to pack out your toilet paper, like have a little wag bag with you and pack it out. Like there's just a lot of things like that. I feel like there's a disconnect for people that aren't super involved in the outdoor community that there's just like a lack of education there and how you should actually treat our natural systems. And so similar to like picking up your dog's waste, you would be doing that then with your human waste as well. Exactly. Exactly. And so is that, would that be true for going number one as well? Like what's the protocol on that? So there's, Different areas have different rules for that. So in some parks or some forest areas, you know, you're supposed to be like 200 feet away from water, which I think is always a a good principle. There's actually, I heard recently, I haven't actually fact checked this, but I heard recently that there's some areas where they actually recommend that you go directly into the water because I know it will just wash it out downstream faster. But 
I think in that, and at least in Rocky and most places in Colorado, you're supposed to be like at least 200 feet away from a lake water body or anything. Anytime you're um, going to the bathroom. Gotcha. <laughs> this, this episode has turned into a lot of bodily functions. Hilarious. Okay, good. So to summarize, be far away from water sources when you go number one and pack out your number two. Yeah. Good. Uh, I'm curious, just because of the pandemic, are you guys looking at anything in terms of social impact as people have been either quarantined or, or maybe this is the only thing that people can do? And so we're, we're seeing more people outside. How is the pandemic maybe playing into all of this? Yeah, so interesting that you bring that up because we actually just looked at we put trail canners out in the Lockville watershed to kind of monitor how many hikers are coming in thinking that there would be less people up there this summer and the park had a a reservation system in place they still do so it's supposed to limit people coming into the park to 60 percent of the amount of parking spaces available in Rocky Hmm. um and but the funny thing is what we found is Lockvale, Lockvale watershed. So like Bear Lake, the Lock, Sky Ponds had the same number of visitors this year and last year. There was no wow. impact on the reservation system, but everywhere else in the park that there were trail counters out had like a significant decrease in people. And okay. so if people are familiar with Rocky, the Bear Lake corridor where the Lock and Sky Pond are is like kind of like the place to go in the park. There's like Alpine Visitor Center, you drive Trail Ridge Road, and then there's Bear Lake, the Lock, Sky Pond, Emerald Lake. That's where everyone goes yeah. when they go to the park. So the park is thinking what happened is, you know, people have their reservation and they can only be in for like a day. And so they're like, oh, we got to go to the best place. And so everyone kind of chose this watershed to go to this summer. So yeah, interestingly, COVID really had no effect on the amount of people we saw up at these lakes. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, regrettably, to be honest, I've only been into the park one time and that's literally the path I took. So (laughs) it definitely is the most traffic. Yeah, it is great. It's beautiful. I love it. Cool. Uh, Any other research projects you just want to share about? Yeah. So we have a fun one I started this summer, um, which actually is going to be turning into my PhD project. And I've been mapping the benthic algae on the bottom of the Lock and Sky Pond with a little underwater submarine that we got. So basically, I've been going out monthly and doing transects across the lake and recording video of of the benthic algal growth on the bottom of the lake and like target areas that are representative of different patterns throughout the season. So we started in July and I just did my last one last week. So the hope is we're going to capture like the seasonal variability in algal cover and kind of be able to figure out what changes on the bottom of the lake, like where are we seeing these blooms occurring, maybe, and then figuring out why are they occurring in these areas. And eventually we'll be pairing the maps I get with our little underwater submarine with um, satellite imagery and so we right now we're developing a satellite remote sensing tool that can monitor lake productivity through using different bands that the sentinel and landsat satellites emit down to earth and so at any given time we can know like how productive the lake is and monitor its productivity especially over the summer growing season but the problem we've been having with that is we don't know if it's picking up the bottom of the lake or not Mm. so me going out and mapping the benthic algae is going to be factored into the algorithms we use for the remote sensing stuff to really have a refined remote sensing tool. And the hope is we'll be able to carry this out to mountain regions all over the world. It won't just be applicable to Rocky, but we could use it in Sierra Nevada and California. We could use it in Glacier and every kind of everywhere. Cool. 
I love that. So the idea is that you'd be using the submarine to kind of validate and create a model to be able to track benthic algae growth on all kind of lakes on the Western or in any mountain range. Yeah, exactly. And so then what's the significance of having benthic algae as opposed to, you know, at the surface? Yeah. So we've been noticing, especially over the past 10 years, when we see these big benthic algal blooms, that most of the productivity is going on the bottom of the lake. And a funny thing in in limnology is that no one really studies the algae on the bottom of the lake. It's kind of like within the past couple of years, people are starting to be like, we should probably be measuring this. (laughs) Um, But it's hard to measure because, you know, it's like, how, how do you grab samples, you know, that are like meters down and how do, how do you like figure out where it's growing on in certain areas of the lake. So um, I'm also getting grab samples from the bottom of these lakes to get chlorophyll measurements um, Mm -hmm. that'll be tied to the maps I have because we think with just getting the water column algae, in productivity that it's not really representative of what's going on in these lakes. It's kind of like a piece of it, but we're missing the bottom. So sure. that's what sure. the project is hoping to answer. And so the issue with the remote sensing is that it's looking at like, I would assume like the color of the lake. So when it goes from blue to green, it's more productive. And then you can't necessarily see what's going on at the bottom. And that's where the technology with the submarine comes in. Yeah. So there's a certain, there's certain reflectance um, that the satellite emits down. So there's red, green, and blue bands that like Sentinel satellite, for example, emits down earth. And then when it picks back up, you can use those and tweak the, tweak the bands um, to be able to give you a measurement for chlorophyll, for example, for us. And, but, you know, as you go down in depth, eventually those bands, like they're not going to reach down forever into the water. They kind of stop. And so we don't really know what they've been picking up. So we're hoping if we add in this benthic growth from the maps with the submarine that we'll be able to determine, okay, well, it's, it's not picking up the bottom at all. So we need to add this in, or maybe in the lock, for example, it might be picking it up because it's more shallow. And so we'll factor in the, um, the algal submarine maps into sky pond or deeper lakes. Cool. And how how deep are these lakes that you are uh, measuring? So the lock is, its deepest point is about five meters. Um, okay. It's not super deep. A lot of it is actually around uh, two meters. Um, so it's pretty shallow and it has okay. pretty good visibility most of the time. So you can see the bottom from our little rafts we take up. Cool. Sky Pond's deepest point is around 7.4 meters. Oh. Um but most of it is probably like in the three to five meter range in depth. And the visibility is usually lower up there. It has higher productivity in its water column. It's a, lot, it's a much greener lake because of nutrients it gets from the snow and the glacier um, melt out in the spring and summer. And so, yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're pretty different lakes, um, but it's nice to have them kind of stacked right next sure. to each other so we can uh, have pretty good comparisons when we do studies. Cool. And in this submarine, I'm assuming you're not inside of it, right? It's no. like, a, like a drone or something like that that you're controlling with a remote. Yeah, it's a little like remotely operated um, cool. vehicle. So I'm just, I'll sit in our raft and I have like this, you know, just almost like a video game controller. Yeah, that's it. Green, and I'm just sitting there staring at it, driving around this little drone. It's small, but it weighs about all of it put together weighs about like 30, 35 pounds. So hasn't been yeah, the most fun to carry up. Yeah. When you're hiking up. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Crazy. Well, that's super cool. Have you found anything like cool or interesting at the bottom? Like, I don't know, like a treasure chest or anything like out of the ordinary with the submarine? <laughs> Nothing 
too spectacular. Kind of sad, actually. There's see a lot of like cliff bar rappers and uh, oh, wow. bar rappers and stuff. Um, we actually lost a years ago. Um, they lost a Secchi disc, which is a, a device you use to measure um, the visibility in the water column. It's like a common limnology thing. And they lost one in the bottom of the lock in like the deep hole. And mm. actually last week I was swimming around I, the drone and I fa- found it down there. It's like, no way. like, pull it out <laughs> next time. That's cool. Yeah, I remember using one of those in my field bio class in undergrad. So I definitely know what you're talking about. That's cool. <laughs> Okay, so I guess that brings me to uh, as far as the cliff bar issue, and, and again back to this idea of human impact. You know, we think maybe in in a broader sense, how is climate change impacting these alpine systems, these you know water systems? Like, what's the the big picture issue, and how climate change is having a negative impact on these ecosystems? Yeah, so I mean, warming temperatures a huge deal for mountain systems. Um, mountain systems, a lot of studies have been done that show that high elevation systems actually experience warming at like a two to three time greater rate than the um, than lower elevation systems. And mm. so they're experiencing this phenomena at like a much faster pace than um, lower elevation areas. And so it's kind of a question like, can these systems adapt fast enough or can like the can the wildlife adapt fast enough? There's a lot of research going into looking at pika um, and seeing if they're going to be able to adapt to warmer temperatures because eventually, you know, they're get, if it gets warmer and warmer, they're going to get keep it, getting pushed up the mountain and eventually their ecosystem yeah. cut off. And yeah, and then warming temperatures have like a huge um, impact on the lakes itself. That's actually another reason that we're seeing more algal productivity because the water's warmer. It's more conducive for these algae to grow and they have a better environment to have a longer growing season. Uh, I didn't mention this project, but we're also looking at ice phenology and looking at how it's changed over the past couple decades um, on our lakes. Because, you know, if you have, if the ice is melting out earlier and then getting on in the winter at a later date, there's a longer growing period there for algae to grow in the lake and potentially, you know, eventually have toxic algal blooms and stuff if it doesn't cool off and ice on fast enough to like kill off that, that algae. Sure. Another, another big problem for climate change in alpine regions is like glacial melt. So, you know, especially in Glacier National Park, you know, like almost all of those old glaciers are either gone or going to be gone in about 10 years. And Mm. they're extremely small. We have one glacier that's actually about the same size it's been for the past few years, Andrews Glacier up by the Lock and Sky Pond. And that's like the only one in Rocky that hasn't been shrinking significantly. So here in Colorado, you know, all the glaciers in Rocky National Park are like rapidly shrinking in size. Mm. So what's the significance with Andrews Glacier? How is it able to remain at a standstill? So it's actually in a unique position where it's behind a mountain in a such a way that it doesn't get as much direct sunlight. And so it doesn't get that radiation that's just like beating down on that sure. that ice. And so it's been able to survive a lot better than most of the other um, glaciers in the park. And I would assume that as these glaciers start to dissipate, the albedo or the reflectance of that ice starts to dissipate as well. And then you have, you know, darker color surfaces Obviously, the lake isn't covered, so it's a darker blue in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that increasing, you know, the warm the warmth in those ecosystems as well, which just kind of has this positive feedback and, and accelerating the melting even more? Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. It just expedites it and makes the problem that much more worse. And, you know, as these glaciers melt and stuff, and they actually hold a lot of 
like nutrients as well. And so as they melt out, they're pushing all these nutrients down into the ecosystem and down into the water. And so that also has, you know, a big feedback effect as well. Alpine systems are experiencing rapid change and it's a matter of time before they kind of are completely different from what they were, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah, it seems like a very volatile situation where things are just becoming highly exacerbated and intensified. So I guess then, you know, what would be, you know, the solution to these issues? You know, it seems like a lot of it is centered around trying to curb, you know, primary production and algal blooms and trying to maintain, you know, cooler temperatures, save, you know, glaciers. Like what, what's, I guess, the, the big picture? And then we can talk about maybe daily actions, but uh, in terms of the solution for the issues that are, we are seeing in these alpine regions. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in regards to climate change itself and warming temperatures, I mean, there's not a lot we can do specifically, you know, we can, it's not like we can put a little barrier over the tops of our mountains and protect them. So, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, it's down where we are in places, things that we can do to try and mitigate what's going on up in mountain regions and not specifically to tied to climate change, but kind of like global change with nutrients and stuff, trying to mitigate and change like fertilizer use in agriculture. And there's actually an early warning system in place in the front range of Colorado, which goes out to dairy farmers and stuff in the front range. And anytime there's going to be an upslope storm event, they get a notification saying, don't turn your manure fields and stuff because that's going to release nitrogen and ammonia into the atmosphere. and It's going to get blown up into the park and into the mountains. So there's stuff like that that's been done. There's a nitrogen reduction plan in Colorado that was actually started because of a lot of the research in the Lockville watershed that basically pointed to that nitrogen is like changing these ecosystems fundamentally. And so it, I mean, it's state like a statewide nitrogen reduction plan um, that's been going on for, I want to say probably like 15 years now. I'm not hundred percent sure when it started but it's actively trying to get like the transportation industry to reduce its emissions, agriculture to reduce its emissions and kind of get hit these target dates or target numbers year by year to reduce nitrogen emissions. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it is very, there's a lot of big scale stuff that kind of, you know, needs to be done. I mean, that's yeah, the context sure. of global change and climate change anywhere in any system. It's a lot of big scale stuff that needs to happen to protect these systems. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and that comes out of a human benefit as well, right? Because if we start supporting industries that are in particular for agriculture that are less reliant on nutrient additions in terms of this big industrialized model, more often than not, you know, those systems that are more in the regenerative ag, the sustainable ag, they're going to have less chemical inputs. That's going to mean healthier food for you, healthier planet, healthier soils. They can draw down more carbon and also play into the role of climate change. But also when we think about nitrogen in regards to transportation, you know, you mentioned again, nitrogen is one of the biggest uh, emissions that come from fuels and burning fossil fuels, especially in automobiles. That was like why the catalytic converter was ever created, but it's still not as or super efficient and you still have a lot of those emissions. And then when you have really hot, sunny days, especially like here in Denver and California, you get this, you know, development of smog and then you get really bad air quality. And as we all just felt, you know, the brunt of wildfires, I mean, living in a situation with really poor air quality is not beneficial or, or good for anybody, right? It was quarantine 2.0. And so, you know, these issues or I guess these solution strategies are not just beneficial for the environment, but they're also beneficial for the people oh, yeah. living in those environments as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, 
and we can make, you know, where we spend our money and the type of food we're buying and the type of, you know, how often you're driving and what kind of car you have and all this stuff. I know everyone can't like make all those changes right away. It's like you can go out and buy an electric vehicle tomorrow, but you know, you can reduce your impact um, by, you know, carpooling with people or using public transportation and stuff like that. Like there's a lot of small things we can do that, you know, if a lot enough people are making these small changes, like that has a huge impact on industry and just on ha- having a, beneficial impact on our alpine systems for sure so the solutions need to be big and small we need like policy changes big system changes and then you know we can play a role in it and the day-to-day as well as you're mentioning as far as going out into the wilderness hiking on trails we talked a little bit about lnt are there any other things that we can be doing as we go out to enjoy nature that we can be reducing our impact on these beautiful and starting to become really degraded environments yeah i mean i would say staying on trail is just a big one um i know everyone don't cut switchbacks don't yeah don't cut the switchbacks it's just causing erosion and compaction and hurting the vegetation and yeah, staying on trail, you know, as much as you want to like go run across something to like, see if you can see a better view or whatever. And I don't know, I have like a kind of like a lot of mixed feelings about that because there's a lot of, you know, a lot big part of like a mountaineering community and stuff and summoning peaks. There's a lot of off trail stuff involved with that. And I think for people that are, you know, if you're super immersed into the outdoor community and you are looking at like trails and stuff that people have done before that might not necessarily be on like a hiker's map or something like that. Um, It's just, just being smart about being in areas and not not trampling areas that haven't been used before. If you're backpacking, like try to find a spot that someone's used before. Don't just like go out and like sit out in like an Alpine tundra region and like smash all of that vegetation being cognizant of fire hazards when you're out in the wilderness um, as well just out backpacking and camping and stuff even when there was a fire ban you know I saw people having fires and stuff and just trying to just being smart carrying out your waste just trying to you know you walk into the mountains and try to leave it like as good as you found it for sure 100 percent so good, a lot of really good practical tips and tricks for people who want to get out and enjoy nature and do it in a responsible way. So I love it. I guess just one last question, just because of the the relevancy of the topic, you know, how have, you know, all these wildfires been impacting perhaps your research or again, these ecosystems? Yeah, so we actually weren't able to go sample two of our annual lakes in the park. Um, Louise and Houston are two alpine lakes in the northern region of the park and the fire is actually like right on the other side of that ridge so the park closed down that whole section of the park so we haven't been able to get up in there i mean we probably won't be able to until they before they ice on this year so we'll have like a year gap in data for those lakes but fortunately we've been able to get into the park weekly yeah we haven't done a ton with looking at ash deposition and whatnot in the water and the surrounding ecosystem yet but there are people that are looking at fire impacts and like the Poudre river and stuff like that um, that i'm familiar with for sure for sure awesome well thanks so much for sharing so much about your research and everything that's going on and and so many amazing good tips for people who again want to get out and experience these magnificent beautiful areas but to do it again in a sustainable way so i really appreciate just the practical application for that as well 
Uh, I really enjoy following you on Instagram. You go to really incredible, beautiful places. And you also give really cool, like nerdy, sciencey stuff about what you're doing with your research. Uh, maybe if you want to just drop what your Instagram handle is so if people want to follow along in your journey, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So my Instagram is at Caitlin Charlton with, so it's Caitlin Charl one zero. I don't know if I should spell that out, but. <laughs> You're good. I'll, I'll put it in the, uh, the show notes. So if people want to follow along, they can do that. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. The first episode about mountains. So I'm really excited to have you on. So I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was great. <laughs>